Chapter Nineteen, Section Two of Children of the Ghetto by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Nineteen: The Courtship of Shoshi Schmendrick, Part Two. Shoshi's affection for Becky increased weakly under the stress of these intimate conversations with her family. At last his passion was rewarded, and Becky, at the violent insistence of her father, consented to disappoint one of her young men and stay home to meet her future husband. She put off her consent till after dinner, though, and it began to rain immediately before she gave it. At the moment Shoshi came into the room, he divined that a change had come over the spirit of the dream. Out of the corner of his eye he caught a glimpse of an appalling beauty standing behind a sewing-machine. His face fired up, his legs began to quiver, he wished the ground would open and swallow him as it did Korach. "'Becky,' said Mr. Belkovitch, "'this is Mr. Shoshi Schmendrick.' Shoshi put on a sickly grin and nodded his head affirmatively, as if to corroborate the statement, and the round felt hat he wore slid back till the broad rim rested on his ears. Through a sort of mist a terribly fine maid loomed. Becky stared at him haughtily and curled her lip. Then she giggled. Shashi held out his huge red hand limply. Becky took no notice of it. "'No, Becky,' breathed Belkovitch, in a whisper that could have been heard across the way. "'How are you? All right?' said Becky, very loud, as if she thought deafness was among Shoshi's disadvantages. Shoshi grinned reassuringly. There was another silence. Shashi wondered if the convenances would permit him to take his leave now. He did not feel comfortable at all. Everything had been going so delightfully. It had been quite a pleasure to him to come to the house. But now all was changed. Eh, the course of true love never does run smooth, and the advent of this new personage into the courtship was distinctly embarrassing. Her father came to the rescue. "'A little rum?' he said. Uh, "'Yes,' said Shoshi. "'Chaya! No! Fetch the bottle!' Mrs. Belkovitch went to the chest of drawers in the corner of the room and took from it a large decanter. She then produced two glasses without feet and filled them with the home-made rum, handing one to Shoshi and the other to her husband. Shoshi muttered a blessing over it, then he leered vacuously to the company and cried, "'To life!' "'To peace,' replied the older man, gulping down the spirit. Shoshi was doing the same when his eye caught Becky's. He choked for five minutes, Mrs. Belkovitch thumping him maternally on the back. When he was comparatively recovered, the sense of his disgrace rushed upon him and overwhelmed him afresh. Becky was still giggling behind the sewing-machine. 
Once more Shashi felt that the burden of the conversation was upon him. He looked at his boots, and, not seeing anything there, looked up again, and grinned encouragingly at the company, as if to waive his rights. But finding the company did not respond, he blew his nose enthusiastically as a lead-off to the conversation. Mr. Belkovitch saw his embarrassment, and, making a sign to Chaya, slipped out of the room, followed by his wife. Shoshi was left alone with the terribly fine maid. Becky stood still, humming a little air and looking up at the ceiling, as if she'd forgotten Shoshi's existence. With her eyes in that position it was easier for Shoshi to look at her. He stole sidelong glances at her, which, growing bolder and bolder, at length fused into an uninterrupted, steady gaze. How fine and beautiful she was! His eyes began to glitter. A smile of approbation overspread his face. Suddenly she looked down, and their eyes met. Shoshi's smile hurried off and gave way to a sickly, sheepish look, and his legs felt weak. This terribly fine maid gave a sort of snort, and resumed her inspection of the ceiling. Gradually Shoshi found himself examining her again. Verily Sugarman had spoken truly of her charms. But, overwhelming thought, had not Sugarman also said she loved him? Now Shoshi knew nothing of the way of girls, except what he had learned from the Talmud. Quite possibly Becky was now occupied in expressing ardent affection. He shuffled towards her, his heart beating violently. He was near enough to touch her. The air she was humming throbbed in his ears. He opened his mouth to speak. Becky, becoming suddenly aware of his proximity, fixed him with a basilic glare. The words were frozen on his lips. For some seconds his mouth remained open. Then the ridiculousness of shutting it again without speaking spurred him on to make some sound, however meaningless. He made a violent effort, and then burst from his lips in Hebrew, "'Happy are those who dwell in thy house. Ever shall they praise thee, Sela." It was not a compliment to Becky. Shoshi's face lit up with joyous relief. By some inspiration he had started the afternoon prayer. He felt that Becky would understand the pious necessity. After fervent gratitude to the Almighty, he continued the psalm, Happy are the people whose lot is thus, etc. Then he turned his back on Becky, with his face to the east wall, made three steps forward, and commenced the silent delivery of the Amidah. Usually he gabbled off the eighteen blessings in five minutes. Today they were prolonged till he heard the footsteps of the returning parents. Then he scurried through the relics of the service at lightning speed. When Mr. and Mrs. Belkovitch re-entered the room they saw by his happy face that all was well, and made no opposition to his instant departure. He came again the next Sunday, and was rejoiced to find, 
that Becky was out, though he had hoped to find her in. The courtship made great strides that afternoon, Mr. and Mrs. Belkovitch being more and more amiable than ever to compensate for Becky's private refusal to entertain the addresses of such a schmuck. There had been sharp domestic discussions during the week, and Becky had only sniffed at her parents' commendations of Shoshi as a very worthy youth. She declared that it was the remission of sins merely to look at him. Next Sabbath Mr. and Mrs. Belkovitch paid a formal visit to Shoshi's parents to make their acquaintance, and partook of tea and cake. Becky was not with them. Moreover, she defiantly declared that she would never be at home on a Sunday till Shoshi was married. They circumvented her by getting him up on a weekday. The image of Becky had been so often in his thoughts now that by the time he saw her the second time he was quite habituated to her appearance. He had even imagined his arm round her waist, but in practice he found he could go no further as yet than ordinary conversation. Becky was sitting sewing buttonholes when Shoshi arrived. Everyone was there, Mr. Belkovitch pressing coats with hot irons, Fanny shaking the room with her heavy machine, Pesach Weingott cutting a piece of chalk-marked cloth, Mrs. Belkovitch carefully pouring out teaspoons of medicine. There were even some outside hands, work being unusually plentiful, as from the manifestos of Simon Wolfe, the labor leader, the slot manufacturers anticipated a strike. Sustained by their presence, Shoshi felt a bold and gallant wooer. He determined that this time he would not go without having addressed at least one remark to the object of his affections. Grinning amiably at the company generally, by way of salutation, he made straight for Becky's corner. The terribly fine lady snorted at the sight of him, divining that she had been outmanoeuvred. Belkovitch surveyed the situation out of the corner of his eyes, not pausing a moment in his task. "'No? Uh, how goes it, Becky?' Shoshi murmured. Becky said, "'All right. How are you?' Uh, "'God be thanked. I have nothing to complain of,' said Shoshi, encouraged by the warmth of his welcome. "'My eyes are rather weak still though much better than last year." Becky made no reply, so Shoshi continued, "'But my mother is always a sick person. She has to swallow buckets full of cod-liver oil. She cannot be long for this world.' "'Nonsense, nonsense!' put in Mrs. Belkovitch, appearing suddenly behind the lovers. "'My children's children shall never be any worse. It's all fantasy with her. She coddles herself too much." "'No, no! She says she's much worse than you,' Shoshi blurted out, turning round to face his future mother-in-law. "'Oh, indeed!' said Chaya angrily. "'If your mother had my health, eh, she would be lying in bed with it. But I go about in a sick condition. I can hardly crawl around. Look at my legs! Has your mother got such legs? 
one a thick one and one a thin one shashi grew scarlet he felt he had blundered it was the first real shadow in his courtship perhaps the little rift within the lute he turned back to becky for sympathy there was no becky she had taken advantage of the conversation to slip away he found her again in a moment though at the other end of the room she was seated before a machine he crossed the room boldly and bent over her uh, don't you feel cold working <coughs> it was the machine turning becky had set the treadle going madly and was pushing a piece of cloth under the needle when she paused shoshi said have you heard reb shmuel preach he told a very amusing allegory <coughs> undaunted shoshi recounted the amusing allegory at length as the noise of her machine prevented becky hearing a word she found his conversation endurable after several more monologues accompanied on the machine by becky shoshi took his departure in high feather promising to bring up specimens of his handiwork for her edification on his next visit he arrived with his arms laden with choice morsels of carpentry he laid them on the table for her admiration they were odd knobs and rockers for polish cradles the pink of becky's cheeks spread all over her face like a blot of red ink on a piece of porous paper shoshi's face reflected the colour in even more ensanguined dyes becky rushed from the room and shoshi heard her giggling madly on the staircase it dawned upon him that he had displayed bad taste in his selection what have you done to my child mrs belcovitch inquired nothing he stammered i only bought her some of my work to see and this is what one shows to a young girl demanded the mother indignantly they're only bits of cradles said shoshi deprecatingly i thought she would like to see what nice workmanly things i've turned out see how smoothly these rockers are carved there is a thick one and there is a thin one oh shameless droll dost thou make mock of my legs too said mrs belcovitch out impudent face out with thee shoshi gathered up his specimens in his arms and fled through the door becky was still in hilarious eruption outside the sight of her made confusion worse confounded the knobs and rockers rolled thunderously down the stairs shoshi stumbled after them picking them up on his course and wishing himself dead all sugarman's strenuous efforts to patch up the affair failed shoshi went about broken-hearted for several days to have been so near the goal and then not to arrive after all what had made failure bitter was that he had boasted of his conquest to his acquaintances especially to the two who kept the stalls to the right and left of him on sundays in petticoat lane they had made a butt of him as it was he felt he could never stand between them for a whole morning now 
and to have attic salt put upon his wounds. He shifted his position, arranging to pay sixpence a time for the privilege of fixing himself outside Widow Finkelstein's shop, which stood at the corner of a street, and might be presumed to intercept two streams of pedestrians. Widow Finkelstein's shop was a chandler's, and she did a large business in farthingsworth of boiling water. There was thus no possible rivalry between her ware and Shosh's, which consisted of wooden candlesticks, little rocking-chairs, stools, ash-trays, etc., piled up artistically on a barrow. But Shosh's luck had gone with the change of locus. His clientele went to the old spot, but did not find him. He did not even make a hansel. At two o'clock he tied his articles to the barrow with a complicated arrangement of cords. Widow Finkelstein waddled out and demanded her sixpence. Shoshi replied that he had not taken sixpence, that the coin was not one of vantage. Widow Finkelstein stood up for her rights, and even hung on to the barrow for them. There was a short, sharp argument, a simultaneous jabbering as of a pair of monkeys. Shoshi Mendrick's pimply face worked with excited expostulation. Widow Finkelstein's cushion-like countenance was agitated by waves of righteous indignation. Suddenly Shoshi darted between the shafts and made a dash off with the barrow down a side street. But Widow Finkelstein pressed it down with all her force arresting the motion like a drag. Incensed by the laughter of the spectators, Shoshi put forth all his strength at the shafts, jerked the widow off her feet, and seesawed her skywards, huddled up spherically like a balloon, but clinging as grimly as ever to the defalcating barrow. Then Shoshi started off at a run, the carpentry rattling, and the dead weight of his living burden making his muscles ache. Right to the end of the street he dragged her, pursued by a hooting crowd. Then he stopped, worn out. "'Will you give me that sixpence, you gunniff?' "'No, I haven't got it. You'd better go back to your shop, else you'll suffer from worse thieves.' It was true. Widow Finkelstein smote her shuttle in horror, and worried back to purvey treacle. But that night, when she shut up the shutters, she hurried off to Shoshi's address, which she had learned in the interim. His little brother opened the door, and said Shoshi was in the shed. He was just nailing the thicker of those rockers onto the body of a cradle. His soul was full of bittersweet memories. Widow Finkelstein suddenly appeared in the moonlight. For a moment Shoshi's heart beat wildly. He thought the buxom figure was Becky's. "'I've come for my sixpence!' Ah! The words woke him from his dream. It was only the widow Finkelstein. And yet, verily, the widow, too, was plump and agreeable. If only her errand had been pleasant, Shoshi felt she might have brightened his backyard. He had been moved to his depth latterly and a new tenderness 
and a new boldness towards women shone in his eyes. He rose and put his head on one side, and smiled amiably, and said, "'Be not so foolish. I did not take a copper. I'm a poor young man. You have plenty of money in your stocking.' "'How do you know that?' said the widow, stretching forward her white foot meditatively, and gazing at the strip of stocking revealed. "'Never mind,' said Shoshi, shaking his head sapiently. "'Well, it's true,' she admitted. "'I have two hundred and seventeen golden sovereigns beside my shop. But for all that, why should you keep my sixpence?' She asked it with the same good-humoured smile. The logic of that smile was unanswerable. Shoshi's mouth opened, but no sound issued from it. He did not even say the evening prayer. The moon sailed slowly across the heavens. The water flowed into the cistern with a soft, soothing sound. Suddenly it occurred to Shoshi that the widow's waist was not very unlike that which he had engirdled imaginatively. He thought he would just try if the sensation was anything like what he had fancied. His arm strayed timidly round her black-beaded mantle. The sense of his audacity was delicious. He was wondering if he should say the Shechianu, the prayer over a new pleasure. But the widow Finkelstein stopped his mouth with a kiss, and after that Shoshi forgot his pious instincts. Except for old Mrs. Ansell, Sugarman was the only person scandalized. Shosh's irrepressible spirit of romance had robbed him of his commission. But Mekich danced with Shoshi Schmendrick at the wedding, while the Kala footed it with the Russian giantess. The men danced in one half of the room, the women in the other. End of chapter 19